Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This is an RNZ podcast. Nga mihi nui, and welcome to this podcast from Our Changing World on RNZ, in which technology expert Peter Griffin is in search of immortality, or is he? This problem, the problem of ageing, kills 100,000 people every day. That's roughly two-thirds of all deaths. That's quite bad. That's Aubrey de Grey, the British scientist working to try and reverse the ageing process. De Grey estimates that if you're middle-aged today you have a 50-50 chance of making it to what he and others in the life extension movement call longevity escape velocity. That's the point at which your life expectancy increases faster than the time that is passing. A year goes by and the technological improvements give you, say, two or three years of additional life expectancy. The scientific progress accelerates to a point where if you are maybe 70 or 80, you can be rejuvenated back to the health of a 30 or 40-year-old. So your risk of dying never depends on how old you are. De Grey thinks that when humans reach this point, they could live for a thousand years or longer. How does he propose getting us there? He compares ageing to a car wearing down due to damage. Eventually it will break down completely if it isn't repaired. If we can avoid that in the body by repairing our biology at a molecular and cellular level, maybe we can slow or prevent the physical decline that comes with ageing. It's a bold idea that has captured the minds of some Silicon Valley billionaires, such as Peter Thiel, who in 2011 became a New Zealand citizen. The big theme that I think we could be spending more on is solving the question of aging. Is Can we treat aging itself like a disease that can be uh, slowed or possibly reversed? And, um, and I think we've not even scratched the surface in asking questions about it. I think most of us deal with aging, deal with death, through a combination of acceptance and denial. We, it's going to happen to us, nothing we can do about it. Denial, it's going to happen to other people, it's never going to happen to me. Uh, and this sort of schizophrenic attitude, uh, I think, uh, is sort of very enervating. And uh, instead of acceptance or denial, I think we should be fighting it. The problem is that despite progress with stem cells and new gene editing tools and the billions that Thiel and others in Silicon Valley can throw at this, we are several breakthroughs away from gaining immortality. That's why some futurists, such as the inventor Ray Kurzweil, see digital technology getting us there faster. What if we just download our consciousness into computers and live virtually or in the silicon brains of robot bodies? Now we can actually seriously talk about a scenario where we will be able to extend our longevity indefinitely. Uh, we're going to get to a point 10, 15 years from now where we're adding more time than is going by to our remaining life expectancy. We're going to be able to overcome disease and aging. Most of our thinking will be non-biological. That'll be backed up. So if part of it gets wiped away, you can recreate it and we'll be able to extend our lives indefinitely. I'd rather use that word than forever. 
Kurzweil and de Grey plan to have their bodies cryogenically preserved, basically put in the deep freeze when they die in the hope that they'll one day be able to be reanimated when the technology is available to do so. But what does this all mean for us as human beings? What happens when a small number of super wealthy, the immortal one percenters, get to live forever because they can afford life-extending treatments? What is human existence when your consciousness exists only on a computer server? To find out, I went to Christchurch to talk to a social scientist who's been thinking about exactly these issues. My name is Amy Fletcher, and I'm an associate professor of political science and international relations at the University of Canterbury, and my specialist area is science, technology, and environmental policy. Amy, you've been looking at the effort in Silicon Valley to sort of reverse engineer the aging process, see how it works in the aim that they can make us live longer. What got you interested in this? Well, biotechnology policy and biomedicine is my key specialist area within science and technology, and I just finished up a long-term research project on de-extinction. So when you look at the questions around or the controversies around bringing back, say, a woolly mammoth, you almost invariably get into questions about what is the boundary between life and death, Does that have any implications for human health? So even though they're two separate research areas, there's some conceptual and technological overlap that I find quite interesting. Because we've seen some of the biggest names in Silicon Valley, Elon Musk, the the founder of Tesla. We've seen Peter Thiel, who's a, a New Zealand citizen who founded PayPal as a billionaire, has lots of money to put into this. Google with Calico, its subsidiary working on this sort of technology. What's the motivation in putting all of this money from Silicon Valley into these sorts of technologies? I think there's probably several motivations. I mean, part of it, of course, is that if you could find the cure for aging, you would probably make an extreme amount of money. That would be a very popular product. I also think, though, that that generation of Silicon Valley billionaires, they are hitting middle age, maybe a little bit older, And they're very used to a great deal of success in the things they try to accomplish. So they bring that same engineering mindset, that notion that if we just think about the problem long enough, we can solve it. And if we put money and smart people on the problem, we can cure aging. So I think it comes out of a particular optimism around the possibilities of technology. Ultimately, this is going to be treatment for the wealthy, at least initially, isn't it? If they can even pull it off. Probably. I mean, like all technologies on the private market, it would likely roll out to the wealthiest first. The hope would be that you could scale that up and mass market it and make it more of a traditional consumer product. But you're right. I mean, the benefits won't accrue to everyone should it happen. You know, they'll accrue to people at different levels economically. You have the people like um, Peter Thiel and the futurist Ray Kurzweil who who very much wants to prolong his life now, be as healthy as he can in the hope that he will be around when these technologies exist. But the reality is that when these technologies do exist, at least in the early years, there's going to be huge inequality, isn't there? There's going to be people who can afford it. There's going to be billions of people who can't afford it and have more traditional treatments. But is there, do you think, an altruistic sort of aim in in all of this? The likes of Mark Zuckerberg talked with Facebook about connecting the world. He wants everyone to be connected to information on the internet. That's why he's given away um, cell phones in Africa, for instance. Is there an element of that, do you think? I think it's easy to get a bit cynical about Silicon Valley. 
And certainly you can't be naive about Silicon Valley. They definitely are looking for that next big disruptive breakthrough. And there are people who have risked a lot of money and want to see a return on that investment through anti-aging or life extension. But again, if you stand back from that, I would expect there are people who sincerely think that if not necessarily conquering death, then contributing to healthier, longer lifespans is actually a contribution to make to society. So I'm sure, as with all things in Silicon Valley, it is a mixture of big aspirations, big profit potential, and then probably some people who genuinely think they would be helping the world. So what do we know about the main areas of fundamental research that's going on? I've heard about this so-called young blood uh, (laughs) science that's been parodied a little bit, um, but some people are taking that seriously. What do we know about that one? Well, we know in the States that the FDA started paying very close attention to that one. So that's not just this moment. That's always been part of the human condition. You have to be very careful in this space to distinguish between the hype, what is possible, and what might be probable, but is way out on the technological frontier. So in that particular case, the mismarketing of that to vulnerable people, the potential for blood-transmitted diseases, if regulatory protocols were not filed. There were a lot of different reasons that the FDA started paying attention to that one and said it veered a bit more as an industry at this point in time into hype rather than a real medical procedure that could do some good. We're also seeing work at the cellular level, so-called telomeres, the, the little pointy bits on the end of our cells that reduce in size over time. Is there any promising work happening there? That work has been visible for quite some time via TED Talks and the like. And again, it's quite promising, but I think one of the things that's potentially problematic is that in today's world, a lot of preliminary scientific findings are reported. And I don't mean that to blame anyone, but you've got the scientists who want their work to be visible. You've got the media who are interested in important stories. You've got the investors who want to hype the product. So in the case of telomeres, there was some very interesting findings about how that affects aging and the relationship between ongoing stress, shortened telomeres, and aging. But usually with biotechnology, it's a lot harder to get to a scalable product that you can actually take to market in a safe way. So we're still very far from any kind of applicable breakthrough, would be my understanding of where the science is right now. And that's probably applicable also for the gene therapies. We've heard a lot about this. We've got gene editing technology very advanced now. What are you seeing in that space? I know people like George Church and um, some of the people involved in the Human Genome Project, Craig Venter, people like that are interested in this area. It is fascinating. The ability, sort of our collective ability to manipulate genomes has increased exponentially in a very short amount of time. So CRISPR, as a breakthrough, I speak as a social scientist, but as a breakthrough, CRISPR is more efficient, less expensive, and it lets people who know what they're doing edit genes in a very effective, controllable way. But as with all things biotech, it always ends up more complicated than you potentially anticipate. So we know we had the case in China where a doctor went ahead and used CRISPR to modify a human embryo to reduce its vulnerability to HIV. But we're already seeing in that case, which caused major ethical controversies around the world, you can improve one area, but then that can potentially have a cascading effect 
that can cause illness or disease or problems in other areas. So we're such a complex organism that these things do show great promise. We're much farther along than we were, say, in 1953, but it always ends up being more complicated and a much longer road than usually we're told when these stories first break. So the fundamental stuff, yes, we're probably a short way into a quite a long journey to achieve some of these. But there are things now that doctors are prescribing, things like you know fasting regimes, um, drugs and diet control to try and prolong your life. And some of this has proven to be relatively effective. But what are you seeing in the stuff that's happening now? Is there a really good evidence base underpinning some of it? There are people that are using exercise massive vitamin supplements, fasting. So you're right, there are a group of people who are pursuing these things and they may have an effect over time. What I'm interested in coming at it from the ethical and cultural perspective is that even in order to do a proper fasting diet, you do have to have a fairly organized life. You have to have a certain access to, you know, you can time it, you can control when certain things are happening. It's sort of like the Fitbit phenomenon where you keep such rigid, you know, records about the exercise you're doing and your pulse rate and all of those things. It's not that those are not potentially hopeful things to do, but I think the question is, can most people with a normal kind of very jam-packed life with a job and kids and bills to pay and just all the things that stress people out in our modern world, can they actually harness those regimes over the long haul? I think that's very hard for most people to do. Yeah, how realistic uh, is that for people living a, a modern life? And then the billions of people who just realistically can't live that lifestyle. Exactly. They're, they're, they're not getting the right nutrition day to day anyway. And so there is that issue, I guess, we'll have to grapple with as this becomes more realistic scientifically is what are the implications for society in general here? It's, it's going to throw up some really philosophical questions about what it is to be, to be old, to be middle-aged forever, potentially, if you're living to 150 or, or longer. How is it going to change our perception, you think, of what it's like to live? I think that's where it gets very interesting because science is important and there's some very talented people working on these questions where I really think it starts to matter in a sense is how it's going to affect individuals, their families, their communities, and the larger society. So on the one hand, as long as nobody's made worse off, we already accept variation, socioeconomic variation in terms of health, in terms of average lifespan, and a host of other things. So one group being better off, you could potentially argue, as long as nobody's made worse off. But that's where it gets complicated, because if certain people are living, say, let's say double the average lifespan, let's say to 150, becomes feasible. Well, that is such a, would be such a massive extension. It would require much longer work spans. It would require much longer access to retirement funding. We'd have to deal with the question of ageism. We'd have to look at the education system. We'd have to look at, you know, staggered careers and people changing careers. So you're right. I mean, even if it stays in the realm of the hypothetical, if we even manage to push healthy aging out to, say, 110 or 120, for a relatively large number of people, it has cascading effects all through the economic and the social system. Yeah, and look, by 2100, uh, the UN predicts we'll have 11.2 billion people on the planet. If maybe a billion of the lucky ones are living to 200 or, or longer, what's that going to mean literally for the sustainability of the planet? 
Exactly. You've got the question of if someone's living double the normal lifespan, particularly if they come from a wealthy country where the climate footprint is already high, is it fair in a certain collective sense for that person to get to double? You know, are you going to have to change people's behavior? And it could end up, you know, maybe a perhaps dystopian scenario that the same technological progressivism, the technological freedom that causes us to push these boundaries, well, we could end up in a situation where we then have to look seriously at limiting the number of children that some people could have. While this is hypothetical and while the science is in a really interesting, you know, degrees of how much into the future we're talking about, there are some important questions that we need to be thinking about now. I think even if we leave the radical age extension and the immortality questions to the side, if we do manage to reach a healthy 90 on average or a healthy 110 or even a healthy 120, that would have massive effects and implications for the economy, for society, for retirement, for families. And that's where I think the questions get very interesting. Now, there's another sort of fork off research very much in vogue in Silicon Valley at the moment, less focused on the biological science and more on what they call the human brain uh, computer interface. So people like Ray Kurzweil suggest that maybe the future solution is to upload our consciousness into computers so that we can live forever. What sort of questions does that throw up for you? Coming at it from a social scientist, I'm interested in the fact the question's even being asked. To truly answer that question, we need philosophers, we need neuroscientists, we need theologians. What I do know is, yes, that's a very prominent strand that somehow we'll be able to create a sort of digital immortality where the most important part of you can be uploaded to a robot, to a computer. But I know from having given talks in this area that even to broach that topic is where audiences often start to get quite contentious because people have very strong views on whether that is possible or is not possible and the degree to which some of that Silicon Valley digital uploading might be a modern version of snake oil. The prospect of it is very exciting to some, to others it's such an impossibility that really, it's just at the level of science fiction. So it might be fun to talk about, but it can't really come into this debate. So that's just an open-ended question within science and within philosophy as well. Would you love to live to 150 yourself? I'm a bit odd in that. Anecdotally, whenever I've asked that question of classes or community groups, most people want a healthy 85 to 100, which I find quite interesting because most of the people in Silicon Valley pushing this want to go for the radical. If I could live to 120 based on where I am right now, this salary, this health, the people around me I care about, a job that I love, a community I'm connected to, yes, I would love it. I'd like a good 120. Thanks, Amy. That was Amy Fletcher from the University of Canterbury And that story was produced by technology expert Peter Griffin. This Our Changing World podcast from RNZ first aired on the 3rd of October 2019. The story and hundreds of other stories about science and the environment from New Zealand can be found at rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. We have a free weekly email newsletter and you can sign up for that while you're there. All of RNZ's podcasts, including Our Changing World, 
are also available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, Google Podcasts and plenty of other podcast apps. Check out my chemistry podcast. RNZ Elemental is celebrating the 150th anniversary of the periodic table of elements and we are up to radon and rhenium. If you'd like to get in touch, we're on Facebook and Twitter as RNZ Science. Many thanks for your company. Bye for now. Matewa. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.